0: So in this practice we've been doing, steadying and calming and focusing, applying moments of attentiveness, mindfulness, contemplating our experience, reflecting on our experience, having this opportunity to do that, and cultivating this vipassana, this uh, seeing into... As the Buddha said, reflecting on the nature of phenomena as changing. We've been focusing on this changeable nature of our experience, how it's constantly shifting and changing. Everything we can observe, everything we can notice, as an object to the knowing of the jitta, the knowing of the heart, as this Anicca. It's always in a state of flux and change. Whether it's our thinking, whether it's a feeling, whether it's the moods, whether it's the light of the day, whether it's how the body feels, Reflecting also on this experience of, because things are so changeable, it's said that they are dukkha, meaning they're not dependable. We can't ultimately totally lean on the changing conditions of the world for some sense of profound security, which is what we often seek. So that's why we often feel so unsettled because we keep leaning on things that can't give us the stability we seek because the very nature, we're asking from the conditions of the world to give us something they can't give us. Ajahn says it's like going up to a duck and saying, why aren't you a chicken? <laughs> <laughs> why are you quack, quack, quacking when you should be cock-a-doodle-dooing? I mean, it sounds funny, but we do that with life. Why don't you give me more stability and security when the very nature of what we lean on to, lean into, is already in a state of moving and shifting and becoming different than what we assumed it would be, whether it's loved ones or friends or our health. whether it's our bank account. (laughs) And now even the security and stability of even our very earth is in question. This is reflecting, this is dukkha. It's not, dukkha can be suffering and unsatisfactoriness, but things are dukkha because they're just in the state of flux and change. So we've been reflecting on this and reflecting on what the Buddha said that because of this because of this changeability even the sense of what's most precious to us the sense of ourself the sense of <laughs> me which also appears and we feel it as to be so lasting and unchangeable in reality is also shifting moving in a process not quite what it seems to be where I said this this sense of self, it's like it comes together dependent on these what's called these chanting in the heart sutra, these five kandas. Moments of experiencing the self connected with with the feeling of the perception of the body being me, the form the feelings, the different kinds of feelings, the veil in that, the sensations and feelings contribute to this experience of who I am. The perceptions, this third kanda or skanda, that that which perceives and cognizes and can recognize, is familiar, can create a sense of, oh, when we first came into this room, when we started this <coughs> retreat, we didn't have a sense of me about this room, it was just a space and then over the few days we designate this seat and this space and the familiarity of coming to our space somehow it becomes my space which we realise when someone else sits in our space (laughs) (laughs) but you know, where did that come from? This, this this sanya, this perception we perceive and then we start to become familiar and then we start to own and then that sense of what we become more and more connected with, what we become more and more habituated to as our experience of self becomes what, what's called the sankhara this patterning, these habits these tendencies which are very profound in a way these shapes of the self that are, that are conditioned and created through so many streams of what has gone before our ancestry, our cultural background so many different con- aspects of our experience of self this has this um, impact from what has gone before but also our own personal habits and inclinations but even the sankara, even this, the forms of the sense of self, the shapes of them, even if they've been very there for us in a very sort of consistent way, certain feeling tones or certain habits or tendencies or characteristics, they're still actually in a state of flux. They're still not as stable as we might think them to be. And then lastly, the fifth skandha of vijnana which means the consciousness I was talking about early, earlier, just sensory consciousness, moments of thinking, hearing, tasting, touching, seeing, gives the sense of this continuity of me, of thinking me, of feeling me. But sometimes this vinyana, sensory consciousness, is likened to electricity. It's moving from one sense door to another, a moment of thinking, seeing, feeling remembering and it gives this sense of some sort of continuity. But actually as we look more and more deeply through this insight, we start just this constant creation of the self begins to there's a slowing down and we see it's porous, it's full of holes. It's full of gaps and it's also very inconsistent. The self in the morning is often very different than the one in the evening. Yes, that should give us a clue <laughs> so this is why the Buddha said that the characteristic of this experience of self is anatta it doesn't have a, a fundamental solidity an essence to it it's a, it's a changeable process almost it's not that it doesn't exist it exists in the same way he said like if you think of the river Ganges we can even visualize it. He said, there's a river. There's, we know it's there. It exists. You know, people go and bathe in it. and Ships sail on it. And, I don't know ships, but boats. But if you went up to try and capture the Ganges and put your hands into it and pulled it up, into your hands, it would just run through your fingers. Or you just look and it would just be bubbles and foam on the surface. And he said, this is the the same metaphor for the sense of self, the sense of who we are. It exists, it has a flow, it has a continuity, it has a a certain reality. But if we actually look into it and try to capture, we can't. Can't quite put our finger on. So as as we... in the, in the as we start to notice this this change as we've been contemplating this shifting, moving, even the most intimate experience of ourself is also subject to this lack of real grounded somehow, something we can't totally lean into because it's moving then what, what we might begin to actually see is that there is that which is just present, which can notice that which is changing, which we perhaps have had a sense today to be able to really begin to have moments of really just seeing that which just is present, noticing, aware. To start the, the attention starts to not just look at the objects of our experience but can begin to reflect on what is that not just what we're looking at but what is the subject who is the one looking what is the one noticing what is this knowing what is this primary sense of the if there wasn't this illumination of the awareness we wouldn't even notice anything but what is that which illuminates our experience what is that There was a disciple at the, at the time of the Buddha called Aniruddha who was considered one of the foremost disciples in psychic powers and in wisdom. He was just a phenomenal practitioner. And one day he went to Sariputra, who appears in the Heart Sutra, and he said, oh, Sariputra... I am foremost in psychic powers. There's nothing about all the different realms of existence that I don't know about. I can see so much. What's more, I'm the most mindful person in the whole sangha. There may be a little bit of conceit there, but (laughs) I'm really, really, really mindful all the time. But I still suffer. I still experience suffering. And Sariputra gave Anuruddha a teaching he said, well, you know, your, you know your, your estimation of yourself is connected with a little bit of conceit <laughs> it wasn't that it wasn't true but he hadn't still emptied the sense of self there was still some sense of me doing it and so Sariputra said Anuruddha, turn your mind to the deathless Stop looking at the objects and perfecting in the, in you know perfecting your skills in relationship to the objects of your experience, even a very very refined experience. Turn your mind to that which is unshakable, unmoving, which is actually transcends by its very nature the sense of me being the mindful one, or doing it, or the sense of self that's become very, very capable as a meditator, or whatever we're doing. Turn your mind to that which is immovable, which it's this most subtle aspect of the Dharma. One of the meditations for helping us do this from the teachings from Kuan Yin, the Kuan Yin Dharma is the method of listening inner listening because when, when with this turning the mind turning back to recognize the fundamental ground the ground of the mind the awareness of the mind there's we can actually almost, it's this, the There's a teaching, the Kuan Yin teaching is that in listening to sound, listening to the tractor outside, turning into the one that's listening, turning the listening back into the self-nature. Sometimes it's called listening into the self-nature. Not the self that's the changeable self, but listening into the deeper nature. Listening back into the core, listening into the ground, listening into the heart. In the Heart Sutra, we have this Kuan Yin, is also called Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara and Kuan Yin, both of their names mean the one that regards the sound. Avalokiteshvara is the Sanskrit. Kuan Yin is the Chinese, Chen Rezi is the Tibetan, they're all translations of the same, it's a metaphor, Kuan is a is a metaphor, an archetype for this profound practice of listening, for this profound awakening beyond the moving and the changing and the conditions of the world into the unmoving, the unchanging. So in the Heart Sutra we have Avodokiteshvara who is the one that contemplates sound, who listens deeply, talking and reflecting and giving a teaching to Sariputra. Sariputra here in a certain way is also a metaphor for one who has a lot of knowledge, so also is known as the very has a lot of wisdom, wisdom about the world, wisdom about the world, wisdom about the Dharma, knowledge about the Dharma. But Avalokiteshvara is saying, well, actually, even if you have a lot of knowledge, even if you know a lot of things, even if you have a lot of wisdom, this fundamental turning back into the heart is a very something even more simple. In fact it's called the heart of Prajna Paramita, so the heart sutra is one of the prajna paramita. This prajna has an interesting meaning because it means the original meaning of, of nya means gnosis or knowledge, but pra the prefix to this word prajna, which means wisdom means before knowledge. It's the knowing before we, we have lots of knowledge. About things, about the world. So, the, this Heart Sutra is pointing us. I mean, it actually, when you read this Heart Sutra, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We just spent the whole retreat reflecting on the Four Noble Truths and on the, on the Eightfold Path and all these different factors, and then the Heart Sutra just wipes it all out. It says, There is no suffering, there is no path, there is no way, there is no eyes, there is no ears, there is no. It's like, what is it talking about? It doesn't make any sense. What it's doing is saying it's going back to an, the utter simplicity before there's any designation of anything in terms of any teaching, any path, any sense of time, any sense of going anywhere, any sense of attainment and saying it's here, it's here in this most primordial awakeness, knowingness, presence of the heart. And this is where we're encouraged in this turning the mind to the death, listening into this stillness, this emptiness, this presence of the awareness. It's not a. it's a, it's a very, in a way, very simple and humble teaching, because it's a teaching that's encouraging us to let go, even of our attainments, even of our brilliance. In a certain way, we're very brilliant as human beings. We've created an enormous, unbelievable amount of technology and... On every sphere of hum- in medicines and in every sphere of human life, we've created this incredible ability and power to manipulate the objective world. But we haven't somehow we haven't really returned to this, the subject, who is the one doing? Who is what is what is at the heart of all this creativity? Abhijitashtra also means the one who creates, as this Ishvara means to create, is the one who regards and contemplates these creations, but knows that all creations return back into this this heart, into this profound prajna, knowing, present heart, and is encouraging us to, to return to this heart. In this heart, this awareness, in the recognition of this awareness, we, we, we move into the understanding that it's a seamless world, there is no out there. This heart includes everything. The mind that goes out and makes distinctions and objects splits the world into 10,000 pieces. Who we like, who we don't, who's a friend, who's an enemy, which country, which boundaries, which it's just creates a huge complexity. Whereas in this depth of the prajna, the knowing, present heart, that dissolves, all the complexities dissolve. That's why there's no eyes, no ears, no distinctions. Everything is within this one heart, our enemies, our friends, our loved ones, the sounds, Feelings, this bodies, others' bodies, this whole planet, is within this one seamless awareness, which has implications for for how we are in life. One of the in this in the Sanskrit this heart sutra, one of the very first phrases that it opens with is the word iha, sariputra, which means here. This heart's always, it's saying here, it's always here. It's deathless, this unshakable, this unmoving, this knowing present, prajna It's not an attainment. It's not somewhere that we get to. Later in the sutra it talks about waking up, leaving dream thinking far behind waking into the utter simplicity of here leaving behind all the dreams but we're in a way we're, we're waking when we wake up we wake up, it's not easy to wake up actually as we've been finding out we want to sleep, we want to dream on, it's much easier. To wake up is actually, it's like, can be quite shocking. For the Buddha it was shocking when he first started to wake up and he saw, as I was saying last night, those heavenly messengers. It shook him into reality, the impermanence. When we awaken, as we start to awaken, what we thought we might first be doing somehow floating away and above and out of our incarnation we actually start to move through our incarnation and all the layers of our wounds and our challenges and our relationships and it all starts to have to be unpackaged it all starts to become conscious that's why it's not that easy to do this work once we really start to awaken and we're not just meditating to try and have a a peaceful bit and then the rest of life we somehow get tumbled around in until we get back to our peaceful bit. And even more profoundly in this awakening into the depth of the, the reality, of our reality, as we deepen into reality, we realize there is a seamless world there is no outside somehow that we're going to get away from everything else, <laughs> which is what we'd like to so much do in our spiritual process, just get away from it all. But actually, we're awakening to realize we're in woven into the seamless web, web of life. And we're waking up into a nightmare actually now. We're not waking up into Camelot and the American dream, sorry. You know that we've tried to create on Earth the perfect world. We've tried to, we've kind of done a Frankenstein. We've used our powers to manipulate, to bring about this perfect world, and we've created a, a, a machine gone out of control, where we're facing the very likelihood of a complete and utter environmental breakdown we have this destruction going on of our ecosystems the Amazon and the Arctic now that everyone's going for the oceans that are dying we are about a Par sands that are where we're trying to squeeze out the last drop of oil. Yeah. Fracking for the last... <laughs> and they had, a, they had an earthquake, for goodness sake, in England. England never has earthquakes after they started fracking outside of Blackpool. And they're saying, no, it's fine. Yeah. As we're experiencing... The loss of species at the rate of you know massive extinctions are happening, never to come back. It's just shocking. It's just, it's it's not waking up to a nice picture. After years and years of years of. of saving the white rhino in South Africa, the, the park quite near to where we are. It's the oldest game reserve in Africa. It's called unphilozi. They're now being decimated for their horns so that some people in other parts of the world can have the, uh, the illusion of having some kind of muti, what they call muti, in Africa this medicine or power medicine, which is complete rubbish, just completely unscientific. But this ignorance is unleashed, it's unleashed across the planet, and to the point now that we you know it's we can't escape. There isn't a nice little island left anymore where we can ignore the effects of the way that we you know, these agro-farming and the torturing of these animals millions every day millions it's just such a wave of negative karma and terror unleashed upon the innocence, which is our innocence the more we torture the innocence of the animals we're diminishing our humanity we can't separate the two this is what we're waking up to. There's a beautiful story in the Tibetan school about Avalokiteshvara, great bodhisattva of compassion, who vows to stay close, <coughs> close to this realm of suffering, to respond mercifully to the cries of suffering. And it's said for, that, he, that at a certain point, Avalokiteshvara decides to incarnate in Tibet to try and turn the Dharma wheel. It means like one lifetime and it was pretty difficult, not much success. So he comes back again, sitting in his cave, sending out loving, loving kindness meditation and people are still killing each other. It's violent, it's difficult. This is like, in a way, a metaphor for around the time of Tibet when it started to become more Buddhist. Second lifetime pretty difficult. Third lifetime lands up absolutely devastated, starts crying, weeping, gives up in a complete mess and his guru Amitabha who represents Amitabha represents the pure limitless light and life of the pure mind descends and says to Avikateshvara, "What's up?" Just like any guru would. <laughs> And Avlakatesha says, "I can't. They're just, you know, the, I just can't turn these people around. They're so violent and not interested in the Dharma, and it's just too difficult." And and, and Avila is just strewn across the ground. He shatters. The suffering is so great. His head is just shattered, and he's in pieces across the whole show. So Amitabha said, "Well, you know, you did have a bit of an ambitious vow going on. You could have maybe, you know, tuned it a little bit more." So then Avalokiteshvara gets uh, picked up by Amitabha and put back together, reshaped, and lands up with eleven heads and a thousand hands and eyes, and, and reappears in this new form, this sort of supercharged form. To have more power in order to respond. In each of the hands and eyes of these, like Kuan Yin's hands and eyes, Avikateshra's hands and eyes are these skills to respond to whatever circumstance arises, which emerge from this the depth of this awakened mind. This awakened mind, when Kuan Yin realized her awakening she's recording a sutra called the shurangama sutra this is what she she said when she really entered the depth when we let go of our clinging and our de- determination to try and find ourselves in the world of form when she let that go and completely plunged into the profound true emptiness she said, Suddenly I transcended the mundane and transcendental worlds, and throughout the ten directions, a perfect brightness prevailed. I obtained two supreme states. This is Kuan Yin or Avakateshvara talking about her enlightenment. First, I was united with the fundamental, wonderfully enlightened mind of all the Buddhas of the ten directions, and I gained a strength of compassion equal to that of all the Buddhas. There was this enlightenment, there was a recognition in the awakening that it's not that awakening is the same as all awakened beings, all Buddhas. Secondly, I was united below with all living beings in the six paths, and I gained a kind regard for all living beings. This one mind, enlightened in the same way as all awakened beings and fused and together and one with all living beings. This is the nature of awakened mind. And yet within that sense of all living beings, living beings are there, they're appearing in forms and yet there's also this fundamental emptiness. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Emptiness in the form, or as Master Wah would say, emptiness. The fundamental nature of reality is empty, but it's not empty because there's wonderful existence, living beings, forms, day, night, shapes, sounds, sights, trees, oceans, forests, mountains, deserts, all appearing, emerging from this emptiness. So it's not really empty because there's wonderful existence. However, wonderful existence doesn't exist. You try and find something solid, it doesn't really exist because it's empty. It keeps dissolving on us, we keep trying to cold and it dissolves. So it's neither empty nor existing, neither existing nor empty. This is in the territory of the Heart Sutra. Basically it's just making your mind just go Boing <laughs> which is what it's meant to do. Can't figure it out. They can't figure it out. It's a koan. Some some practitioners just chant this heart sutra and just allow it as a koan, just allow it to keep working on you. Don't try and think it through. Just allow it to keep touching touching the heart. Touching us, encouraging us to go beyond, beyond this gatte, gate, paragate. Parasankhate, beyond, beyond all our ideas, beyond our thoughts, beyond our clinging, beyond our hopes, beyond our fears, beyond everything we know until we touch this present, aware, intelligent, knowing, responsive heart that is fused and connected within the whole web of existence and yet unmoving and timeless. and here for the joy and here for the suffering And when suffering comes and it shatters us as it did Avrikiteshvara from that profound returning back into that deeper listening of the heart which is only ever here we become reshaped again and again and again strengthened able to meet the conditions of life in a in a more trusting way knowing that wisdom will be there for us knowing that we can our nature is compassionate our nature is wise our nature is responsive once we know and can practice this inner listening that the nature of this world is miraculous is mysterious it's not quite as mechanical as we might have thought it was miracles happen and this is the territory of Kuan Yin Kuan Yin is also about miracles miraculous response there's a whole practice connected with Kuan Yin there's this profound depth of wisdom going into the emptiness of the heart sutra and then there are teachings about calling on Kuan Yin as human beings recognizing we need help we can't do it we can't Function from the same place we've been functioning and hope to fix the problems we've created we have to make some kind of quantum shift into a whole different way of understanding our reality we have to know, it's a seamless world we have to know that if we harm something over there bomb someplace over there, we're bombing ourselves Mm. if we slaughter these poor creatures in the most despicable ways we're slaughtering something within ourselves you know, that's the world we're now living in. That's the world we're waking up to. And within that understanding, that unit of consciousness where we really start to move from there, then it's a, there's, a, there's a different way of being in life. It's not, it's not an object anymore. The world isn't an object to us. It's a part of us. We feel it. Feel it deeply. And this is an aspect of the awakened mind. It's sensitive, feeling deeply with the suffering. And it can call for help. It's calling for help. It's not calling for help, but calling for help to listen more deeply. Allowing for shifts to happen, openings to happen, miracles to happen. In the, when we were fir- our first um, one of our first long retreats that Kirisara and I did, we had been in South Africa for um, a number of years, and we were also quite magically, mysteriously really, gifted this piece of land after we'd been in South Africa for about two weeks. It was a very strange unfolding and um, a very scary thing actually to have happened to you. Um, it was a piece of land in, a, in what actually we realised later was it is a sacred mountain. It was a sacred mountain to the Khoisan and to also the Zulu. A certain part of the Zulu nation. So we were gifted this land um, by um, the friend I was speaking about the other night. He was uh, worked in one of the big mining companies. Was one of the CEOs. He helped it make make it happen when he heard that we would be teaching there. So I rang my mum, she said, how are you doing? I said, mum, we've got a mountain in South Africa. <laughs> i just left the monastery and that was my next big piece of news. <laughs> she was like, oh no, you know, she's just like a regular working class lady. You know, I was like, oh no, now I've got to tell the neighbours. <laughs> so that happened. And we didn't have any money or any bank accounts. I don't quite know how it happened, but it happened. And, um, and then at a certain point, we actually tried to get some money together. And, but we got to a point where we, about four years into this, this experience, we went back, we got residency, we became South African residents, we started working there. This land had been deserted. It was really overgrown. um, And it had been invaded by these invasive gum and pine trees, which we started to clear. So we started to clear the land, bramble. In the colonial days, Lord Lord, this guy called Lord Bulwer came over and fancied having his blackberry jam. Mm -hmm. So he planted... Brambles, which are now invasive, and you know, how it goes. So we cleared this land, and then at a certain point, we became a little bit burnt out. It was quite an adjustment for us to go to the country at that time, because then it was just around the political changes of 94, 95, and it was quite a scary time to be there. There was quite a lot of violence. The first 10 days we... Retreat we taught at a centre where we were working for about five years as, as a spiritual guides. Just down the road from us, there was there was like a low grade war going on between. We were on a on a, um, a border really between the Inkatha Freedom Party of the Zulu Nation and the ANC of the KwaZa, and there was a sort of a, a, a hundred people killed in a nearby area and people were being you know, there was sort of people were being hijacked, murdered. So it was quite I mean I'd been living in a monastery where if you raise your eyebrows an act of violence, you know, it was it was a little bit shocking to go into this this traumatized field and trying to teach Dharma. And so, you know, so we and then we had this mountain that was overgrown, it was all a bit kind of, you know, it was uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit much, really. It was a bit like, I guess I'm thinking about it, I felt a bit like that avidakiteshvara all over the place, bits all over the place, like, you know, this is hard. And at a certain point, we, we got a little burnout and said, well, let's just stop and do a long retreat. There's this lovely tradition in the Chinese... Buddhism, it's like when it all gets too much, just go into a retreat. It's not just Chinese Buddhism, obviously. So so, so we, we decided to do a three-month retreat. We didn't really have many buildings then on the land. We just managed to build one small, it's called a rondavel, it's a round, traditional shape with a thatched roof. So we had that, and we had a hut that we cooked in, and we had... We invited a few people, and one guy had a teepee that he erected, and then um, we had this other rondavel that had been originally on, this, on the land, and we had someone else live there, and then some a friend in a hut. So there were five of us doing this retreat for three months. We started practicing, and we didn't quite know... Where, what, how we were going to move on with this whole story of the hermitage that we had in her, this land that we started to turn into a hermitage and a place of practice but we thought well if we just stop and, and listen more deeply then maybe some way forward will come so we started doing this retreat and it was really intensive we were doing like these Zen Sashins and Vipassana and you know we just like really were going for it in a really intense way And um, during the, about two and a half months into this retreat, in the winter times there, there are, it's quite a scary time because the land gets very, very dry and it becomes like a tinderbox. So any spark can set off a fire. Of course, you know this here in the States because you have so many fires. And also it's the time of year when there's a lot of winds, like really, really fierce winds. So one day we went. We, we, there was a full moon and we were looking at it and there was all these rings around this full moon turquoise and green and we were going, wow, what a beautiful moon and then later, interestingly enough we read in the Shuranga Sutra where it says that moons with lots of rings around it means be careful because there's some wind coming and the, the next day or so we started to get these wind, this windstorm winds up to about 120 miles an hour screaming winds, and then on this wind, the fire came. There'd been a fire, and we're on the border of Lesotho, and there'd be some kind of fire come down the mountains. It was like, really? um, We saw it in the middle of the night, in the far distance, and thought, oh, I hope it stays over there. But then overnight, the winds picked up. In the morning, that morning, we'd we'd been getting up at four and practicing, and then that morning, we'd been doing, we'd finished this this Zen Sashim, and we chanted all the names of all the patriarchs. And then we went for breakfast and we were all keeping silent. And then one of the retreatants came in and he said, um, Kirisaro was staying. Oh, that's right, we've got this garden hut. It was like weighed a ton for Kirisaro to do the in. We just sort of stuck it there because we didn't have enough accommodation. And this guy came in and he said, I think your garden hut has been picked up and smashed by the wind. And so we, we went out, and this garden hut was just completely smashed like a matchbox all over the place. The wind had picked it up and thrown it. And Kilisari who's a Kuan Yin devotee, said, Oh, my Kuan Yin. <laughs> he had this really beautifully refined bone, Kuan Yin, that had been given to him by, I can't remember, it was very special. So we've, we've, we found it underneath it, been protected under this table. Everything else was gone. And then we had on this, the what was his wall, which was now on the floor, there were two, he had two pictures, one of a Kuan Yin and one of a Mother Mary. And he said, well, I really, you know, the wind is just going crazy. But he said, I really want to keep these pictures. <laughs> it shows our priority. You know, it's like, where's <laughs> the Kuan Yin? So we get the, I got the pictures of the Kuan Yin and the Mother Mary, and I carefully took them back to the, to, the, to the house where I'd been staying in and put them in the drawer there. So that was the morning. And then by the afternoon, the fire started to come, and come, I mean, it just came like a river of fire towards us. Now, we were so like... I think a little bit inflated in our meditation that the guys said, well, we'll just start doing mantras and we'll stop the fire. <laughs> so they're all standing there in a line, and meanwhile I'm a bit more practical. So, you know, I mean, I like mantras, but there is a limit. So I was just like going kind of crazy, saying, no, we've got to get out of here. We've got to get out of here. Let's just go and get a few bits. Go and get the teddy bears. <laughs> Whatever you want to save. And uh, get, get the dog. And so we had to really run for it. You know, they, they actually did. They stopped the fire for a moment. They were doing these mantras at the fire. And it stopped. It kind of the wind died down. And they all looked at each other and went, that's pretty good. And as soon as they thought that we started again. So we had, to drive, we had to drive down the road. This fire came straight through the hermitage and we sort of sat it out for a few hours and um, people started coming in helicopters and they were trying to put it out and they got it under control and eventually we came back to the hermitage and the whole thing was, you know I I was just sitting on the road thinking that's it that's the end of the South Africa story that's the end of the hermitage and the few buildings that we'd managed to put up and I was like, oh, that's a relief (laughs) because it's like stressful to own things so anyway, we get back, and amazingly, the fire had gone around all the buildings, including the thatched roof, which was, came down and is this far off the ground. And it was so hot, it was just igniting logs. And it, had, it was burning logs just a meter from the thatched roof, but the thatched roof didn't burn. And then also it, it ignited this wood pile by the wooden building, And it started to burn the wooden building, but this young Zulu guy came up the road and he just put this fire out while we'd been, while we'd driven down the road, which was kind of amazing because he, you know, he just came out of nowhere and, and put this fire out. So when we came back and we realized actually all the buildings had been saved. And when the fire officer came, he looked at all of this and he said, you've had a miracle here. He couldn't understand it. He was completely baffled. He said, what have you been doing here? <laughs> he couldn't understand it. He said, we've been trying to Yin. <laughs> <laughs> And then we went into a freeze. And, you know, it was for about two, two weeks. We had no water and everything was frozen up. And we had a bit of water, but it was uh, no electricity. So anyway, we were starting to clean up after this fire. And the second day in, as we were cleaning up, because everything was black and it was... Kitty started to me, by the way, where's that Kuan Yin picture that you took from the wall? I said, oh, I put it in the drawer. And I opened the drawer and there was Mother Mary but no Kuan Yin. I said, oh, that's funny. She was there. And then the next day, that same Kuan Yin picture, we'd been walking in and out of this hut, which we were using as a kitchen, many, many times clearing up, and then suddenly this Kuan Yin picture just turned up in front of the door by the hut, just completely miraculously. Mm -hmm. It just hadn't been there before. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, (laughs) everything's all gonna be okay. And then just after that, we had, we just really didn't know how we were going to actually build up this hermitage. And then this friend, someone that we knew, um, actually we didn't know them, but they knew us, we didn't know them so well, they offered a, a really large donation that enabled us to take the hermitage to the next stage. And it was almost like At the most desperate place, when everything had nearly finished, there was this miraculous response and this help that came. And that's really been how we've worked out there, in all, you know, nearly just going to an edge and then something appearing that had some hopeful way forward. And I really see that as a way for our times it's like, this is, we're, we're in a, this is unprecedented, the times we're in now, in terms of what's happening globally and what kind of responses that we need to make. And if we come from the minds, the dualistic mind that keeps thinking, if we go along the same tracks we've always gone along, where we motivate that mind that sees the world as an object and then is motivated by greed or fear or Control, you know, trying to control everything dominate everything we're just not going to make it you know it's like we, this shift, this deepening shift into our awakened nature where we really feel our interconnection where we can really these more miraculous shifts quantum shifts of response can happen in accordance of what's really needed So in this this teaching, this practice, it encourages us not to lose. In this, the end of the Heart Sutra, it says, this teaching is true and not false. This spiritual mantra, this great, bright mantra, supreme mantra, unequaled mantra, it can remove all suffering. It is genuine and not false. This is why the mantra of Prajna Paramita was spoken. It's, uh, It's saying, don't give up on your heart. Don't give up, it's not false. We think what is real is really real and yet it is kind of real but it's unreal, it's dreamlike. And what, is, what we assume is unreal is really real. It's our, our true depth of our listening, aware, present, sensitive heart. This is real. This is our refuge. This is the source of the connection with the Buddha mind. This is the Buddha mind. This is the Kuan Yin that's responsive, that's sensitive, that fills its oneness with all, all of life. Knowing this, trusting this, gatte gatte, paragatte, parasangatte, bodhisvaha, one leaps beyond all suffering. May be so. Thank you for listening.